For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome back to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Sorry we were off last week, I was a little under the weather, but we're back and we'll have new episodes all the way through to the end of October. After that, we will be on a short hiatus while we start working on Season 2, um, but we'll have more news for that as we get closer to Halloween. That's all for now, but as always, if you like the show and you like what we do, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to get our shows into the ears of new listeners. And if you really, really like the show, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podchaser. And without further ado... This week's episode. Jaws is a movie that, perhaps, needs no introduction. Released in 1975, it was the movie that put Steven Spielberg on the map, codified the practice of studios releasing big summer movies, and made generations of people afraid to go into the ocean. The story follows police chief Martin Brody as he investigates a series of shark attacks in the fictional New England resort town of Amity Island. With the help of a visiting marine biologist, he discovers that the attacks have all been perpetrated by a single animal, and the two men enlist the help of a local war veteran and shark hunter to take the monstrous shark down once and for all. The movie was a huge box office success, but that success has come at a cost. Since the release of Jaws in 1975, the fear of sharks has become so endemic to Western society that it's led to massive shark holes and harmful anti-shark nets that kill hundreds of thousands of sharks a year. This is despite the fact that, on average, only about 10 fatal shark attacks on humans occur annually. It's easy then to understand why shark conservationists have strong opinions on Jaws. For the past 40 years, marine biologists have been trying to save the shark's reputation from the damage this film did to it. Unlike in the movie, sharks in real life are mostly unconcerned with people, and attacks only happen at random as a result of the shark mistaking an unlucky swimmer for its usual prey. Sharks don't seek out people. In fact, most species actively dislike the taste of human flesh. So the science is pretty clear. Something like the targeted, repeated attack on humans shown in Jaws would never happen in real life, right? Well, before you decide to go to the beach for some dusk skinny dipping, you might want to reconsider after today's story. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. It's the summer of 1916. Woodrow Wilson is in his third year in the White House, and while America has yet to join in the fight, across the Atlantic Ocean, Europe is being ravaged by the war to end all wars. In fact, the Battle of the Somme, one of the deadliest battles ever fought, has only just started that July. You would think that with such a bloody war going on that stories about the ongoing conflict between the Allies and the Central Powers would dominate the newspapers, even in America. But this isn't the case in New England. On the July 15, 1916 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, a story about advancing British troops in the Battle of the Somme is pushed off to the side to make room for the day's real big story, complete with three pictures, 
huge shark of the man-eating species caught at Belfort, New Jersey. Normally, shark attacks aren't newsworthy, and you'd hardly expect to see someone's fishing pictures taking up more space on the front page than the biggest geopolitical upset of the century. But this wasn't an ordinary shark. The shark caught that year on the Jersey Shore had been terrorizing beachgoers for weeks by the time of its death, to the point of becoming almost a local legend. This nine-foot sea monster had been dominating the tabloids all summer, and it had even been given an unofficial name, the Matawan Maneater. The Matawan Maneater's reign of terror began with, not a skinny-dipping teenager as in the movie, but with a young man by the name of Charles Vincent. He was a doctor's son from Philadelphia who, on July 1st, went for a dip at Beach Haven and never came back. People on the beach heard him screaming but didn't pay it much attention. Most assumed he was joking or calling after his dog who had gone in for a swim with him. That was until the water started turning bloody. Sheridan Taylor, a bystander, went for help and swam out alongside lifeguard Alexander Ott to rescue Vincent, who they soon realized was being bitten on the legs by a shark. According to Ott and Taylor, the shark was uncharacteristically aggressive. In most attacks on humans, sharks abandoned their victims after an initial test bite, but this one supposedly followed Ott and Taylor almost all the way back to shore when they took away its quarry. Sadly, when Vincent was fully out of the water, it was clear that the shark's bites had completely flayed his leg. And before he could be moved to a hospital, he bled to death in the manager's office of the Angleside Hotel, where he had been staying with his family. This attack, while tragic, was treated as a fluke. Shark attacks were then as they are today, statistically negligible. In fact, some even questioned that a shark had been the animal responsible for the fatal attack. The New York Times described the incident thusly, Vincent was badly bitten in the surf by a fish, presumably a shark. Vanson's death was called a one-off and the beaches of the Jersey Shore remained open. It wasn't just because of the usual wave of Fourth of July vacationers that happened every year. During the summer of 1916, the northeast of the United States was experiencing both a deadly heat wave and a polio outbreak. Record numbers of people were flocking to the seaside, both to beat the heat in the ocean and to reap the health benefits of sunlight and fresh air. There was no way that local businesses wanted to lose out on all that potential revenue. People continued to swim and sunbathe unfettered, and reports of large sharks from ships entering the port at Nork were ignored by the authorities. But then the second death happened. The second attack happened on the 6th of July. Charles Bruder, a 27-year-old bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel, was swimming 130 yards from the shore at Spring Lake, another resort town 45 miles up the coast from Beach Haven. A woman on the shore heard his screams from the beach and, spotting a capsized canoe and a bloody patch in the water, notified the lifeguards on duty, Chris Anderson and George White. They rowed out to save Bruder and quickly realized that he'd been attacked by a shark. His abdomen was badly bitten and his legs were completely severed. They pulled him from the water, but he bled to death on the way back to shore. Bruder's death shocked the people of Spring Lake as he was well-liked at the hotel where he worked. Hearing news of his death, both guests and workers at the Essex and Sussex, as well as some of the neighboring hotels, even started a fundraiser for Bruder's mother. Bruder's death was what turned the story of the man-eating shark from a minor curiosity to a full-blown media circus. The Jersey Shore shark attack was front-page news in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and even as far away as San Francisco. The story was so widespread, in fact, that it resulted in an estimated 75% decline in sunbathers on some New Jersey beaches, and thousands of dollars in lost business for local resorts. 
On July 8th, a press conference was held at the Museum of Natural History, with a panel of scientists intended to calm the panic around shark attacks that was quickly growing across America. The scientists were zoologist Frederick Lucas, ichthyologist John Nichols, and ornithologist Robert Murphy, though the reason why a bird specialist was included on a shark panel has been lost to history. They stressed that shark attacks were rare and that a third would be unlikely, but still urged swimmers to stay close to shore and in netted bathing areas wherever possible. In an effort to put bathers' minds at rest, shark nets had been installed on several beaches and lifeguards did routine shark patrols in motorboats up and down the coast. The press conference did nothing to calm the panic, though, as shark fever was gripping the mid-Atlantic. Citizens were forming shark hunting posses, and sailors and fishermen from Connecticut to Alabama were reporting near misses with 12-foot-long monsters. Then, on July 12th, another attack took place. The third attack was the most shocking of all because it didn't happen in a resort town. It didn't even happen on a beach. This attack took place in Matawan Creek, 30 miles north of Spring Lake and far inland. That afternoon, a group of boys, including 11-year-old Lester Stilwell, were playing in the creek with their dog. One of the boys spotted a black shape in the water, which he at first thought was a submerged log or piece of wood that the river current had picked up. Then he saw a dorsal fin crest the surface and he realized he and his friends were in serious danger. All of the boys were able to get up onto the bank to safety, except for Lester Stilwell, who was dragged underwater. Lester's friends ran into town for help and a group of local men, including 24-year-old Watson Stanley Fisher, mobilized to investigate. Fisher and his companions drove into the water to try and find Lester's body. At one point, Fisher had a hold of Lester, but the shark bit him as well, causing him to lose the boy. Fisher made it to a hospital, but unfortunately still bled out and passed away at 5.30 that same day. Lester Stillwater's body was taken upstream by the current and was eventually recovered on the 14th of July. Naturally, this epic tale only added to the media frenzy around the shark attacks. And with this latest death, people became convinced that all four deaths were the fault of one abnormally aggressive animal. And following the latest attacks, the papers finally had a catchy alliterative name for the beast, the Matawan Maneater. The Maneater's fifth and final victim was taken a mere half hour after Fisher and Stilwell's deaths. But unlike those two, 14-year-old Joseph Dunn actually lived to tell the tale. His brother was able to pull him from the shark's jaws and get him to a hospital where he made a full recovery and was discharged in September of that year. Eris B. Henderson, the mayor of Matawan, was none too happy about his town being used as the namesake for America's most wanted shark. Naturally, something had to be done. Matawan Creek was lined with fishing nets and at some point a few residents even set charges of dynamite under the water to try and blow the shark out of hiding. Mayor Henderson even personally ordered the Matawan Journal to print wanted posters for the animal, offering a bounty of $100 to whoever could slay the beast. And keep in mind, $100 in 1916 was quite a lot of money, over $2,000 today. Despite all this effort, no sharks were ever caught in the creek. As a matter of fact, while the attacks in the creek were believed to be the same shark as the attacks on the beaches around the same time, consensus has shifted on the man-eater's identity in the century since. It's now commonly believed that the Jersey Shore attacks were committed by a juvenile great white, while many scientists and historians attribute the Matawan attacks to a bull shark, a species known to be highly territorial and capable of breathing in fresh water. Back on the Jersey Shore, though, sharks were being caught by the dozen. In an effort to save the livelihood of the region's hotels and business owners, the Wilson administration set aside $5,000 of their budget to eradicating the perceived shark threat. This was on top of the already plentiful civilian terms of would-be shark catchers that seemed to constantly patrol the coastline. 
A reporter for the Atlanta Constitution wrote this on July 14th. Armed shark hunters and motorboats patrolled the New York and New Jersey coasts today, while others lined the beaches in a concerted effort to exterminate the man-eaters. The Matawan man-eaters' killing spree has since gone down in history as the largest-scale animal hunt of all time. This gruesome series of deaths aren't the only parts of Jaws that were based on true events. When we return after the break, we're going to take a look at the man who inspired Jaws' most iconic character, as well as the maritime tragedy that inspired the movie's most famous monologue. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. One of the most enduring aspects of Spielberg's movies is the character of Captain Quint, the grizzled, traumatized Navy veteran turned expert fisherman who Brody and Hooper enlist to help them take down the killer shark. He's gone down in history as one of the greatest film characters of all time, and his mix of crazed determination and world weariness make him feel like he'd be at home in something by Melville or Hemingway. But despite being such a larger-than-life character, Quint is actually based on a real person. While Robert Shaw makes the character entirely his own in the film, the character of Quint in the book was based on a man by the name of Frank Mundus, a charter boat captain and sport fisherman based in Montauk, New York. Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, had gone on multiple shark fishing trips with Mundus prior to and during the writing of the novel. Benchley even appeared alongside Mundus in an episode of American Sportsman, a popular TV series at the time which showcased celebrity hunters, fishers, and other outdoor sportsmen. While at the time Benchley denied that Quint was based on Mundus, most likely for legal reasons, everyone who knew the man read the novel and immediately recognized him. Apparently, the only difference between Quint and Mundus was that Quint used a harpoon gun, while Mundus used more practical but less flashy hand-thrown harpoons. Montauk resident Joe Gaviola was once quoted as saying, If you read the book, Quint was everything Frank was. Give me a break. He is Quint. Mundus was born on October 21, 1925 in Long Branch, New Jersey, and he lived in Brooklyn for much of his youth. He began his first charter fishing operation out of Brielle, New Jersey in 1945 with his first boat, the Cricket, named after the Pinocchio character that he often got told he looked like. Two years later, he upgraded to a custom boat, which he named the Cricket Two. In 1951, he and the Cricket Two moved to Montauk with the intentions of starting charter fishing trips for bluefish. Mundus immediately began to cement his status as a local legend when, in his first year of fishing off of Montauk, he joined a volunteer search and rescue team for the capsized party boat Pelican and helped tow the vessel to safety. Side note, you might be wondering why the Pelican capsized. Well, it was over-encumbered, hosting a party of 64, which put it way over the weight limit for a boat that size. Evidently, the person renting them the vessel never thought to tell them, you're going to need a bigger boat. Once Frank Mendes had spent a bit more time in the area, he realized that Montauk was not a good place for bluefish hunting, but the waters around the area were great for sharks. So he got an idea. He started advertising monster fishing tours where brave tourists could pay for a chance to catch gigantic great whites off the coast. He quickly gained popularity for his quirky persona as much as his skill as a fisherman. According to Mundus, the charting business was 90% show and only 10% go. He would wear open-toed shoes to show off his painted toenails as well as a single hoop earring, an Australian slouch hat, and a shark tooth necklace. He would refer to himself as Monster Man and wore a yellow t-shirt decorated with a drawing of him wrestling a shark into submission. He was also known for making ostentatious displays out of the sharks he killed, which were numerous. 
He was known for his unconventional and often borderline illegal fishing techniques, including whales as a way to draw in sharks, and killing the sharks themselves with harpoons rather than hook-and-line fishing. One of Mundus's most famous kills was a great white estimated to be about 4,500 pounds. Later in 1986, he and Donnie Braddock caught another record-setting shark which weighed 3,427 pounds, which is still on record as the biggest fish ever caught with a fishing line. Even though he continued to run charters well into the 80s, in the later part of his life, Mundus changed his practices to be more sustainable, recognizing the harm that his business had done in the past to local shark populations. He campaigned extensively for sport fishermen to practice catch-and-release methods, and even wrote a children's book about shark conservation called White Shark Sam Meets the Monster Man. Mundus retired from the fishing business in 1997 and moved to Hawaii, but still sometimes came home to compete in shark fishing tournaments. In 2005, he was featured on a Shark Week documentary called Shark Hunter, Chasing the Great White, narrated by Roy Scheider, the actor who played Chef Brody in Jaws. In this documentary, Mundus reflects on his career, his relationship with sharks, and the impact of both his business and the legacy of Jaws as a film. Three years later, he would pass away from a heart attack in Honolulu. He's still fondly remembered by the people of Montauk and many of his personal effects, including his Monster Man t-shirt, are on display at the Museum of Living Sharks in Westerly, Rhode Island. If you're wondering what Frank Mundus thought of Jaws when it hit theaters, he gave an appropriately oddball and quintessential Frank Mundus response on his website's FAQ page. It was one of the funniest and the stupidest movies I'd ever seen. No shark can pull a boat backwards at a fast speed with a light line and stern cleats that are only held in there by two bolts. And I've never boiled shark jaws. If you do, you'll only end up with a bunch of teeth at the bottom of your bucket, because the jaw cartilage melts. As we said before, the quint of the book and the quint of the movie are very different people. Robert Shaw, a classically trained Shakespearean actor from England, took the character in a completely different direction and Spielberg's script added in a new backstory that didn't exist in the book. These changes led to one of the film's most iconic moments, Quint's monologue about his experience on the USS Indianapolis. While this aspect of Quint's background was added in for the film, it wasn't fiction. The sinking of the USS Indianapolis really happened, and it was one of the greatest naval disasters in American history. The Indianapolis was a Portland-class heavy cruiser that, in July of 1945, was tasked with the top-secret mission of delivering uranium and other parts that would be used to construct Little Boy, the first of two atomic bombs that would be dropped on Japan. On the 30th of July, the ship was en route from the Philippines to the Army Air Force Base of the island of Tinian when it was torpedoed by an I-58 Japanese Imperial submarine. There were 1,195 on board when the torpedo hit, and 300 men were killed instantly. The remaining 890 were then left stranded in open water at the mercy of the elements for nearly an entire month. They faced dehydration, starvation, heat stroke, saltwater poisoning, and, most infamously, predation by oceanic white-tipped sharks. Part of the reason why the rescue took so long was due to the Navy's failure to act quickly. Back then, the positions of large vessels like the Indianapolis were plotted based on prediction rather than reports. So, at Navy headquarters, it was assumed that everything was going to plan. On July 31st, her scheduled arrival, Commander Marianas removed Indianapolis from the board at Navy headquarters and she was recorded as arrived. This happened even though Lieutenant Stuart Gibson, the operations officer who was in charge of tracking the Indianapolis, knew that the ship had disappeared, but simply hadn't acted on this information. Somehow, despite the massive loss of life that was caused, Gibson was only punished for this oversight with a formal letter of reprimand. 
It took four days after her scheduled arrival for the Navy to recognize the ship as missing. Even though in an official statement the Navy claimed that no distress calls were picked up from the Indianapolis, later declassified documents proved that three stations received distress calls but didn't react. One of them was drunk, another had just gone on a break and told his men not to disturb him, and the third assumed it was a fake signal put out as a trap by the Japanese. Meanwhile out at sea, the crew of the Indianapolis were being steadily picked off. While humans aren't normally on the menu for any shark species, when sharks go into a frenzy, all bets are off. Sharks can smell a single drop of blood in an Olympic swimming pool, and they also possess an extra sensory organ that allows them to detect the electrical currents that are released by other animals as they swim. Naturally, if there's a large electrical charge and a lot of blood in the water, this will attract multiple sharks, and since most sharks are solitary hunters, they start to get territorial. This is why they go into a frenzy. They become singularly obsessed with eating as much as they can before any other shark can get to it. In this state, a shark will devour anything that's in front of it, even another shark, or in the case of the Indianapolis, a shipwrecked sailor. The predation happened in cycles. The more people died, the more blood was in the water, the stronger the smell, the more sharks came to investigate, and the worse the frenzy became. It's no wonder why some of the sailors stranded there opted to end their own lives instead of endure the constant fear that they might be picked off next. The Indianapolis resulted in the highest number of shark-related deaths in history, with some estimates saying that the number of men killed by sharks to be as high as 150. On the 2nd of August, the wreck was finally spotted by a passing PV-1 Ventura airplane on a routine flight. Pilot Chuck Gwynn dropped a life raft and a radio transmitter that finally allowed the survivors to call for help. The first to arrive was a flight crew of amphibious PBY-5A Catalina patrol planes, which dropped more life rafts. Unfortunately, one life raft was destroyed in the drop and the other landed too far away for the exhausted, starving crew to swim to. After this failure, the leader of the flight crew, Robert Marks, went against orders not to land in open ocean and carefully landed his team, allowing them to pick up 56 of the survivors. There wasn't room for everyone in the plane, however, so some of the men were lashed to the wings with lengths of parachute cord. This of course meant the plane was now unable to fly, but it still was definitely a step up from being within chomping distance of hundreds of sharks. After nightfall, the destroyer escort Cecil J. Doyle arrived at the scene of the wreck, followed by six other boats which were able to recover the remaining crew of the Indianapolis. At the time of the wreck, there were 900 survivors. When they were rescued, only 300 remained. All of them were starving, though some had been able to hold on to some canned spam and crackers to keep themselves going, and many were severely injured, some from shark bites, others had their skin badly damaged by a combination of sunburn and excessive contact with salt water. Many of them were in varying states of shock and delirium with some suffering hallucinations. Two of the men, Robert Shipman and Frederick Harrison, died shortly after being rescued. Upon returning to land, Charles B. McVeigh III, captain of the Indianapolis, was court-martialed on two charges, failing to order his men to abandon ship and hazarding the ship, supposedly by failing to zigzag. This court-martial was very controversial at the time, mainly due to the overwhelming evidence that the Navy itself had made errors that led to the Indianapolis being put in harm's way. For example, McVeigh hadn't been warned that there were Imperial submarines in the area when he had been directed to steer through it. McVeigh had, in fact, given instructions to zigzag, but Commander Mochisura Hashimoto, the commanding officer of the submarine that had torpedoed the Indianapolis, gave testimony claiming that executing the zigzag maneuver wouldn't have made a difference. While the other survivors all believed that McVeigh was not at fault, Many of the family members of those who died didn't share that same charitable opinion. McVeigh got a Christmas card one year that read, Merry Christmas, 
Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if you hadn't killed my son. In conclusion, Jaws is a movie based on a book that received middling reviews, had no bankable stars, and an inexperienced director, and had a long and fraught production. By all accounts, it should have been a flop, but it ended up being the biggest movie of its day. There's no doubt that its popularity comes from how much of its plot are rooted in real history. Where later shark movies have become largely unmemorable B-movies, Jaws works because it focuses on the characters and the reality of the situation they find themselves in. It bears repeating, however, that even though the story of Jaws was based on elements of real history, science has moved beyond the understanding of sharks presented in the film. They are not mindless killing machines, they don't hold vendettas, and they don't seek out humans as prey. These myths, perpetrated by Jaws and movies like it, have done immense damage to shark populations worldwide. The kind of overzealous shark holes that swept the Mid-Atlantic in the summer of 1960 still happen today from time to time, spurred on by irrational fear and misunderstanding. Given how shark research was still in its infancy in 1916, we might never know if the original Matawan man-eater was a single rogue shark or simply a few unconnected attacks that happened to take place close to each other. Similarly, we'll probably never know the exact number of men who were actively killed by sharks on the wreck of the Indianapolis. Regardless, these stories have lived on through Jaws, for better or for worse, in their most sensational forms. After all, doesn't everyone love a good big fish story? Tonight's episode was written by Mag Malloy Tuin. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit bloody.fm.